What's the most terrified you've ever been, Jake? Spooked? Like, um... Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I think for me, I don't know if it was scared. Like, I've seen some movies that I was way too young. Uh, like, for like Z- Jaws, when oh. they're going underwater and they're looking through that hole in that sunken boat. And, like, the corpse just floats by. And it's like, oh. Like, that... I think I pooped um, <gasps> in my, I think in I... my pants. Dude, for uh, me, it was the mummy. Oh, yeah. Brendan like, Fraser, dude? Oh, save, save Brendan. <laughs> save Brendan, guys. Oh, no, um, but the mummy was pretty terrifying. Like, the scene where there, there's those, like, beetle gems on the wall. And the they, scarabs? Yeah, the scarabs. And they, they like, pull them skin? off and they start crawl, crawling under your skin. And then, like, eat your brain from mm-hmm. your inside mm-hmm. while you're alive. Like, nice. Nope. <laughs> Um, but I think the most scared I've ever been like in real life, um, was we were, um, out doing something. I think we had a bonfire out in the middle of nowhere when I was in high school and we were walking back through an orchard. Um, and we look over and we just hear a, like this growling of this huge, what appeared to us as like a hellhound. you know, there's this massive jet black, um, spooky looking, huge, enormous dog. Um, that just began, it growled and then it began sprinting at us. Oh no. And so me and my friends, you know, we're all kind of like, you know, just, just normal high school guys, but we all hug each other and we're like, we're going to die. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and so it jumps at us and hits a chain link fence and it was too dark. We just couldn't see the chain link fence. Um, but oh my, that was, I, I, I saw that and it was like this primal tribal fear I'm like, oh, this is how I end. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Well, I don't have anything as good as Jake's dog story. <laughs> uh, what I do have was my brother and I, at one point in our childhood, got a hold of an old black and white TV. And uh, if you know my family history, we didn't have a TV in our house. We just weren't allowed to watch it, if, even if we did have it. So we snuck watch some stuff. Well, one night on this secret TV, I was like six years old. Um, my brother finds the Twilight Zone playing. Yeah. We run playing. This is in the 90s sometimes. So, it, I mean, Twilight Zone has always been old. And <laughs> it was the episode with William Shatner in the plane. And there's oh, the my God. On the wing. Yes. And I had oh. never seen this. Right? Like, now everybody's like, oh, I know that. But, like, I had never seen it. And so we're watching it. And um, I remember I was standing beside my brother's bed. And it was, it was like, sitting on his stomach. And we're watching it. And we're trying to be quiet. And at one point, he pulls up the shade. And then the monster has got his face pressed against the glass. Yes. And it, I mean, if you see it today, like it's a great jump scare, but it, I mean, the makeup's not great, like whatever. No. But as a six-year-old, the, I was disturbed. Yeah. So I remember that was on the screen. And then at that moment, my brother turned off the, the TV. Like he just turned it off and we put it away <laughs> and we just went to bed and I just stared <laughs> at the ceiling and I, I had never been so frightened in my entire life, my oh little my tiny gosh. life. Oh my gosh. But yeah, like wow. I, I saw that clip when I was older. Um, there was a Twilight Zone marathon. I think they still do it every uh, New Year's Eve. Um, and I saw that and that one stuck out to me, not because of the jump scare because I was a little older, but the airline attendants like not believing him is like the most psychological fear. Like he's like, there's someone out on the wing. And like, and they're like, what are you talking about? And he's, and, and like, I'm just screaming at the TV. Like he's telling the truth. He's <laughs> telling the truth. Why won't you believe him? Um, oh, that, that's a, its own psychological fear. 
Yeah, and since then I've seen the episode and I've loved it and it's great, but I still remember how it felt where my entire body like tensed up and went numb. Yeah. I didn't I didn't like scream or or even like I probably startled, but I just I just was dead to the world in the moment. <laughs> Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 31, Tone, Atmosphere, and Music. Um, okay. So, this is hard. This depends on a lot of different things. But in general, my main table games, um, I don't know. I want them to have a traditional fantasy feel, um but also have kind of a darker, grittier, more serious tone. Um, so I think I've said it before, I think my my tone of my games in general, if we're, if we're speaking in regards to like, um, like things that already exist, I think it's the tone of my games is somewhere in between the Elder Scrolls and um, Avatar The Last Airbender. David, what about your games? Um, that's an interesting question because... I don't I've, run D and have a hard time. Like, I, I feel like every time I play, it kind of has a different vibe. If I were to try to name one, it would be like probably similar to Game of Thrones. If it wasn't as dark, so more oh, fantasy. So it, oh, so if it was Lord of the Rings? Uh yeah. Uh, wait, what? That's the spectrum. <laughs> No, uh, well, it's not. Lord of the Rings is more of like an epic story. What's Game of Thrones? Nothing. Like I, well, I think they're both on the spectrum of like being an epic story. So mm-hmm. it's like, I would say it's more. It's similar to Lord of the Rings in terms of fantasy style, and then in terms of like tone, maybe more Harry Potter. So there's more like wonder, whimsical, a little more whimsical at times, but not too whimsical. So it's like probably in between those two. Mm-hmm. Or three. Um, describe the atmosphere or general vibe. I've mentioned before that I like to keep it PG thirteen. Oh, That's not like even Lord of the Rings great. has the occasional decapitation, but there's things in the world that I just don't want to bring into my game. Um, certain types of violence, let's say. Um, but in general, like players are free to do what they want. I don't know as far as tone. Like I know that World of Warcraft really influenced me and in how I want like the world to feel. Uh-huh. But more recently, it's been closer to, um, it's hard to relate it, because it's definitely not Game of Thrones, because that one shows you, like, all of the the nasty stuff, Grit. like, hidden under rocks. Yeah, right? Like, you you look at everything. I guess it depends on the game. Like Dave was saying, it changes depending on what game I'm running, but for my classic D&D thing, like, right now in Chult, it is, I, I guess, just D&D flavored, right? Like, it's Forgotten Realms. This is a weird, that's a weird question, because, like, I don't think that there's one like atmosphere or vibe that I give in my game because even in like the individual session it might be more of one style or another so like maybe well, we could kind of talk about the, the kinds of atmospheres that influence our game sort hmm. of the things that influence the atmospheres in our games like if we talk about more like kind of like how like wow influences how you run a game and the atmosphere that you give versus like how like a game of thrones would influence it you know what I mean like that yeah. might be interesting to talk about Did- I agree, David. I think we should talk about the different types of tones. So let's get kind of just okay. some archetypes of different types of tones. Let's just list them off. So like one type of tone is is a more heroic 
game. I think this fits a little more into like what D&D is aiming for. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other ones? Um, Grim or Grim Dark. This is going to be more like Warhammer or Warhammer 40,000. Oh, yeah. Um, Warhammer Fantasy is interesting because it's more about German folklore and like medieval Germany. Um, totally different take on it. And as a result, you get more of what they call the mud, blood, and poop of the, of the world. <laughs> yeah. I I like this. I don't like relishing in it or like having it the focus, but I think elements of this in a heroic game, and I, maybe it's because I'm playing with older people, um, but uh, you're just like a more mature audience. Like I can have it R-rated, you know, so you can have... You know, just you pass a tree and there's just a woman hanging Um, like stuff like that. And maybe it says like on her, maybe it has like uh, written on some board in front of her, like um, prostitutes are not welcome in our town or something like that. Um, Little things like that, like add, I hate to use the term flavor in that (laughs) aspect, (laughs) Uh, but it adds, um, it really reinforces the tone, right? It, It reinforces like, okay. We need to watch out. Maybe this town is a little more puritanical. Um, so I I don't want to like lean into the grim, gritty, dark, like you said, mud, blood, and poop. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think infusing it here and there can really give the game a more serious tone. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I agree because you can have this really fun heroic game, but having these vignettes almost, right? Like this, this one little part of a scene where you're like, well, they uh, they hung this person because they were accused of being a prostitute, or this guy was accused of being like a, a pirate, right? Um, and then the rest of the game is like, let's go to the tavern and, and get our yeah. quest hooks. Yeah, I um I think I almost do this to combat another type of tone, which would be silly. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't like a lot of times if you guys heard of D and D green text stories, yes. from, oh, yeah, from like four yeah. chan and stuff like that. Um, and they're hilarious, but I, I hear those stories and I laugh and, and they're so funny, but I'm like, I would never want this to ever happen in one of my games. Um, I don't know. It's just like I take the game seriously and I want my friends that I play with to take it seriously as well. Um, and there's so much room to um, let the players kind of have this almost fake antagonistic uh relationship with the dm where they they talk about oh we're gonna mess up your plans or oh uh don't you hate when we do this dm um while at the same time having the main story and the plot hooks and every aspect that is created by the dm still be heroic like i don't want the tone set by me to ever be silly unless it's some stupid ridiculous one shot you know see uh so i i kind of I think that I would separate silly into almost two different types of tones. So there's there's silly, and then there's absurd. Mm. And I think that a lot of what you're talking about is a more absurd tone, where like people are doing more just absurd things for the sake of just being weird or crazy. Because an element of like silliness or just goofing around can be good and positive. At least I, that's what I like to have. But I don't want I don't want my characters like always being absurd and doing weird stuff all the time. Yeah, Interesting. but I think that having it like a silly tone, almost like an Adventure Time kind of feel, can feel you know there's there's some level of like silliness to the world, but you can also easily transition into a more realistic or serious tone if you want to, and then it's kind of 
I try to balance different tones out. Like, I don't want to have the same tone. Like, I don't want to have a monotone game where everything feels the exact same. Because I think that makes the game less interesting. And it's fun to, like, weave in different tones here and there. So you'll have, like, maybe you're, like, like while you're in town, like, you're in the bar. And you're, like, being a little silly, goofing off, having a fun time. But then, like, as you get into the story and progress, like, maybe you have a more serious tone. And then you go into heroic. Or you go and you're in a dungeon and it's more horror. And it's nice to weave in different tones. Yeah, so I think that silliness like that. definitely has a place. and But I definitely wouldn't want it to go to absurdity where characters are just... Like the Peasant Railgun or Mr. Barrington or all these like <laughs> famous 4chan <laughs> yeah. uh, stories. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a really interesting point, David, because just like real life, like real life, the tone of real life is very different depending on the person and depending on like your month, right? Context. Um, yeah. And I think that in D&D, you have all of these mixed together depending on where you're at. Yes. Um, I think that by default, D&D tends toward being a little more silly just because you've, I mean, you're, you're playing make-believe and... Um, but it's up to the GM in a lot of ways for both enforcing the tone of the game that you really want, um, not devolving into silliness or absurdity, and then also picking your players and making sure that they understand what you want from the game as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because a lot of those 4chan stories are like, this This guy goes to his friend's table for the first time and he just wants to screw around <laughs> and mess up the game. Yeah. And I, I think that tone is something that is that needs to be also reinforced by the players like they need to be accepting of the tone shifts that you go through like this is a more like you don't have to say this is a more serious scene but you can say like like as you start to go into a horror game like let's say you're trying to hit more of those horror tones like you have the fog coming in and there's that you hear mysterious sounds you're going to want to have the players acting in a way that is more cautious and scared because that's kind of the tone of the game now where they're trying to approach it in a way that you might in a horror film and so you want players who are going to help and act in a way that is kind of fits in within the world and isn't constantly being like oh i'm not scared i i run into the fog yeah i don't care like that and that's and like maybe there's a reason in game why your character would do that but generally you want to have characters who cautiously approach things oh i want to hear what jake has to say so uh, two things kind of going back a little bit um one thing is i totally love what you guys said about um the tone switching based on the context like i like different quest arcs having very uh, varied um tones like you know this one you're hunting down maybe a child killer who ends up being a vampire it's like that's gonna be dark you if you make that silly i feel like you're um you're losing (laughs) something um well, also, there could be, you know, a bunch of your whole party participating in a battle of the bards uh, in the local <laughs> tavern like that. It's hard to make that grim. Yeah. Right. So um, I, I like the idea of different quest lines of being flexible and saying like, um, you know, yeah, you can go hunt down this this child murderer who's a vampire. Um, and, and I hope as a DM, you wouldn't say stop. No, I want the game to be silly. Or like, um, but also the same thing being like, uh, Battle of the Bards. No, you guys, why would you do that? I want this game to be dark and gritty. Um, so I, I like that it has that flexibility of tone, um, to where it doesn't have to be uniform. Um, also I had a question, David, you said you think that the tone or like the archetype tone of silly should be split into silly and absurd. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what that, I don't know. It's very confusing for me because i have a lot of absurdity in my games but it's treated um straight it's played straight um 
an example? I've, yeah, yes, I have plenty of examples. So I've, I've talked about, uh, I love the, uh, the comic book saga. It has a lot of this. Like it'll just have a person who has, you know, a fish bowl as a head with a little fish swimming in it that talks. Um, but, you know, that, that character might be talking about his recent divorce with his wife. Um, and, and it's, it's very like absurd, but it's played straight. Um, it almost reminds me of kind of Bojack Horseman, um, with the different, uh, animal people that have real serious emotional problems and issues that they deal with. Um, which is really fascinating because it's, it's wrapped up in this silly, almost childish format, but real things can happen. Like, so for example, in my games, I had a, uh, (laughs) an ostrich Arakoa or Arakakra, um, uh, named Sling, who spoke with a Australian accent. Um, and, uh, of course, my players loved it, thought it was hilarious. Um, in fact, that player, that was created by one of my players who uh, said, wait, don't I know an old friend here? Like, a, he was an ostrich, Jerichoa, uh who lived here. And I was like, <laughs> you son of a... Um, and so, but but that character has, has now kind of evolved and is like a staple of Waterdeep now. Um, okay. And it, so it's like, is that absurdity... Does that so, make it silly? Like, I, is it possible to be I, absurd no, 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 without okay. silly? I, I have a way of explaining it. So absurdity and silliness are two different tones, and you can mix and match different tones together. So you can have like a, a grim heroic game, which is kind of what the game that you run. But you can also have, you know, a silly heroic game, or you could have an absurd heroic game. So silliness is often paired with absurdity, but that doesn't mean that you can unpair the two. So people oftentimes when they are absurd and you have the fishbowl on a head, it, they'll they'll take a more silly tone with it. So, so it's unlinking those. It's unlinking those two things and having them be different because you look at like even like Rick and Morty, while it does have a silly tone sometimes, they also are absurd at times and have, you know, a real tone while also being absurd. Hmm. Yeah. And I like, think it's knowing your players enough to be like, would this derail because I, I love, uh-huh. uh, you know, I, I'm fascinated by different NPCs and trying to make them as wild as I can, right? So it's like... Because, yeah. No, ahead. I love absurdity. Like, when you... Like, having, like, Twilight Zone kind of stuff in your games is interesting. And it makes the game, you know, weird. But in a good way. But if you bring a silliness tone to it, that just kind of... It devolves the game into, like... It, it kind of, for me, it takes you... it unimmerses you from the game well i don't think it's the sole or role the story it's not just the gm that is gonna provide this tone because i've seen yeah. um i've provided situations that were very grim um, <laughs> maybe horrifying and, and obviously like not at all funny but then the players crack a joke and they change the situation they treat it um you know disrespectfully or whatever you want to say oh yeah um and so where this is kind of the opposite where you're you present something very silly but then the, you hope the players treat it very seriously like a ostrich-headed Australian accented Eric Cockra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I really love that. Um, I, I like blending. I, I think I've talked about my game is I want it to be very almost kind of what you said, uh, David, uh, like kind of whimsical about Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, and just where, you know, even like I think little moments in Harry Potter uh, that do make me question a lot of the universe. But um, like moments when uh, Mrs. Weasley is doing the dishes with magic. Yeah. Just like little things like that, like interspersed, yeah. you know, or like, exactly. you know, a turtle person trying to sell you a tonic, um, <laughs> you know, like little stuff like that, um, I think adds 
this little um i mentioned this all the time but it, it makes you go oh we're not in medieval europe yeah this isn't like just a standard like this is this is magical and mystical and it makes your mind open up a little more and it makes um i don't know it, it brings excitement and wonder and that's what i think it's it's important to cultivate or like you look up in the sky and there's two moons and it's like oh we're not on earth yeah, yeah. even little things like that yeah and sometimes it could be cheap um funny um, little funny little aside i was watching critical role and i think for the first time like the characters realized that there was two moons and this is like in the second season <laughs> and they have a they're like oh there's two moons like did we know about this <laughs> it's like the the fact that they played you know a whole campaign in this world and they just noticed that there's like two moons like i think is hilarious yeah it, it's really interesting and i think it's it's really important um to communicate with your players, because a lot of players, especially the types that are creating those hilarious D&D green texts, um, don't care if there's two moons on your world, no. right? Like, they don't care about that. So I think communication is key for saying, what kind of tone do we want for our game? That Like, this collective story that we're going to tell. What kind of tone do we want? Do you care about my details? And sometimes this hurts, right? Like... You know, if you prepare a whole world, um, you know, like I've I've played in my world for five or six years now, and the first year or two playing every week, the players really did not care about what lied on the other side of the mountains or um, like certain aspects of the game uh, that were beyond the scope of their quest. They could care less about or they couldn't I mean, care less about. So um, yeah. that's the thing. You have to invest in a world enough that they'll eventually care but you also have to be honest with your communication um which might be an awkward conversation to be like how much do you guys care about this world well the thing is like they don't the thing is i don't think the characters care about the wiki page that you've set up for your world and you know all of the different lore that you have they care about the world that you're building with the in GM. front of their eyes yes so yeah. as the world pops up in front of them and as they continue to be invested in the world and they continue to invest into it, they're going to care more and more about it and the people and the things that have happened. Yes. Like, they don't they don't care about the NPC that they meet for the first time. They care about the NPC that they meet in the third campaign for, like, the hundredth time when they see him come back from the dead. Like, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> for more on this specific topic, you can go listen to episode three, which is about world building. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a thought about um, getting players to care. I don't know if I talked about this in that episode, um, but in... The Dungeon World game, they give you instructions on how to build a world with your players. Yes. It's much yes. more of a story game. Um, and so for a long time, I've, I've taken a lot of cues from that kind of thinking into my D&D &D, to the point where the first time we sat down at a, at a campaign session, I would ask the players this series of questions that um, is standard for me now. Um, and that starts off with what are your favorite movies, books, TV shows, like fantasy books, huh. movies, um, and, and why? And I oh, get that's a, such a good question because right, it, it tells me here's the tone they what want. They like want. If, they, if they say like I like um, there's a, a cartoon show um, really great. It's called Over the Garden Wall, and it is uh, it might be a spoiler, um, but it is Dante's Inferno presented as like this folkloric um, cartoon. It's only like eight episodes long, and somebody said that they like that idea, and it's this uh, very um, you know the term picaresque. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a picaresque 
cartoon. And so all of the things he said he wanted in his game um, were similar to that. And I'm like, okay, this is very different than a Game of Thrones wow. or a um, Witcher-style universe where, like, people are giving birth in the streets and, um, you know, this griffin just ate this family in this house, right? So it, it changes what I was going to present to them. Um, but hopefully everyone has more fun. And then they care a lot more yeah. about the world. Mm-hmm. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think those questions from uh, Dungeon World are phenomenal. And I remember when you first read them to me, you're like, no, no, no we're going to create the world together. I'm, I'm so used to, maybe because I, I hope people do this with me secretly, <laughs> is I want to... Uh, be uh, I've, I've framed it in this way before cradled in the loving arms of a dm and kind of mm-hmm. trust them and be mm-hmm. like this is your world man tell us your story go to town i'm rooting for you i want to know about the lore probably because i hope people do that to my games <laughs> um and so it was it blew my mind when you're like no no, no we're gonna build this world together and i was like what no no, no i trust you just just go ahead uh, mm-hmm. tell me tell me where i'm from you know, um, probably because I'm more of like the actor type that just wants to be right. thrust into a role. What's my motivation? Um, <laughs> but that's um, that's really, really cool. And some of those questions can really show you what your players uh, want. Uh, so I have one kind of aside. What would be, if you asked that question, uh, what's some media or stuff that you like a lot? Um, what would be a red flag answer for your game that you want to run? Um, a red flag answer that I've heard is when people answer with a lot of non-fantasy type shows and movies. Deadpool. <laughs> Law and Order SVU. <laughs> well, if, like I've gotten, um, I think they said like James Bond movies or they said like anime shows. Uh, and, and that's because I, I don't watch a lot of anime, so I don't really know I was going to say means. anime. Yeah. Because I'm not a weeb. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Cut that out. Oh, no. Definitely leave that in. <laughs> We don't want to offend all, all the weaves in the audience. All the no, I had um, I had a uh, a character in my one of my first games that was uh, a um, the player was uh, he he's definitely an anime fan and he yeah he had a I think it was a Sun Soul monk or maybe a Way of the Four Elements monk something like yeah. that that um, basically all his stuff was just reflavored to be like kind of anime maneuvers and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and it worked great. It was super cool, but I'm like, I don't know anime. Like, I don't know, (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds awesome. And it worked great. Um, yeah, it's just, they're speaking a language that I don't know. I can't go, I can't follow you where you're going. Yeah. Um, no, but I think, uh, that the whole collective nature of D and D is something I've learned to to be better at because i used to think this is my world you know i think all dms do when they start off they're like this is my world and these are these are i'm the director of these actors and they'll do what i please if i press the right buttons i think as a dm (laughs) that's the biggest misconception that you have oh yeah you can have is that this is my world and you're just a guest in my world and that is a very flawed view to have if you want to have characters who are engaged and interested and a, a far better view to have is like this is our world and we're building yes. it together and you're not this isn't like an antagonistic relationship that you should be having with your players and that's that's something that often deteriorates games and breaks them down is when you when you are against the gm like the gm is there with you building the world alongside you and working with you and if you have that mindset in terms of how you work with the 
the DM, then you're going to have a much better time on your hands and it's going to be more fun and you're going to have a world that everyone really cares about and invests in. Yeah. And that's something who's, you know, I'm in the lucky position that I built a world with like three or four different parties over time. Uh, and, and I've got to see it and it's so fun to, you know, text people who moved away three years ago and say, Hey, remember that monastery that you founded at the end of that campaign? Yeah. A new character is from that monastery now. And it's just, it's super cool. And even then they're like, hell, I haven't played D and D in, you know, two years, but that's so awesome. I'm glad that, you know, my character had an impact on a living, breathing world, even after I'm playing in it, uh, after I played in it. So yeah, I, I love that. And I think doing this over time and kind of letting your players have a direct impact on your, on your world can, can pay huge dividends later, you know, especially if it's the same group. Cause they're like, Oh, remember my character when they did this, that changed this. And now I'm part of this bigger story because of a direct action of me playing like three years ago. It's just super, it's just fantastic. It's one of, if not my favorite part of D and D. Um, yeah, I wish I wish I had that kind of continued history with my players, but it's been so inconsistent. Oh well. Um, oh well. So just kind of finishing off the the topic of communication, um, have you guys ever had to have discussions that might be awkward uh, with players about controversial or offensive topics, or if if someone is making too many ridiculous or disgusting jokes, or maybe they're um, going for a tone that the rest of the party is not have you guys ever had to sit down with a player one-on-one or even text them and just be like hey calm down or change this or we got to talk i've had two players i would say my entire life and they were in different games thankfully one of them was very immature in his humor and everything he did was a poop joke it's called scatological humor he thought it was classic comedy and so it was tough because everything you do is sort of like undercut by what if will's talking about me right now oh my <laughs> this guy's name was jake barton um he would always just throw poop everywhere he told me his name was jake farton one time okay. and i told him to leave okay thanks thanks <laughs> elementary school bully <laughs> wow got him um i'm not good with confrontation or certainly not back then. Now I'm a lot better. But back then I was a child. And I just didn't invite this person back. And um, he was often in the same area. And he would see us walking to go play our game. And we would just wave at him and keep walking. So, yeah, don't do that to people. That was bad. And then the second yes. person, um, he obviously wanted a much more grim and horrible. I wouldn't say horror. I would say horrible tone. <laughs> so everything he did was like, um, he's like, I slice my hand open and uh, shake your hand and cause a blood pact. And he's from like this this deposed nation of elves who are covered in face tattoos. Um, it's just like everything was over the top and dark. And he's like, yeah, and actually um, in my backstory, I can't get along with any of you because you're not the specific blood elf thing. Um, but uh, the blood oath will help, you know, improve the situation. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like you're playing this heavy metal D&D and we're over here playing like Teletubbies D and D, and I don't know how to make these <laughs> these tones mesh. Yeah, but sometimes later, they're too far. Later, I learned that he ran his own game for his friends, and they did things in that game that I would have um, stood up and left the table. Um, they basically they told me, or he told me that um, one of their friends was uh, out of the game that week, and all of the other friends, all male players, they made their players rape his character. Oh, and I'm, 
my God. <laughs> and I said, why did you allow that? And then why didn't you stop that? And and what did you do as a reciprocation? He says, nothing. <laughs> I'm like, I am so glad you're not in my game because obviously your values are completely different than mine. Yeah. Holy jeez. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. And I feel like those, that can be detected early on. Like that's not something you're going to have your, one of your good friends suddenly be like, oh, this guy's a maniac, like a horrible <laughs> monster in D&D, right? I feel like people yeah. kind of play close to their archetype in real life. What do you yeah. guys think about that? Do you think that, like, can you get a read on someone? Have you ever seen someone that just played D&D totally the opposite of what you thought they would? No, never. No. It's, it's always yeah. expected. I, I'm pretty, I, I think I'm pretty good at judging people and whether or not we would, they would get along at my game. So I just, I'm very careful about who I invite and who I, I've been friends with in general. And if I don't, if I wouldn't want to like hang out with someone on a regular basis, I probably am not going to want to play D&D with them. So I like, I think that like your pre-screening needs to just be careful. And if, if someone in real life is just constantly making like jokes that you don't necessarily find funny or are off taste to you personally, or there's just, there's not that chemistry that you would have with someone who you would want to hang out with consistently or talk to a lot, then you probably wouldn't want to play D and D with them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you guys, uh, where do you play D and D? Just a brief description of, of where you play. Like how big is the table? What room is it in? What kind of chairs? So my playing location has changed a little bit. Um, both locations are in my house. Um, we used to have this big dining room table um, that we've since gotten rid of, sadly. Um, but it was—it's a small dining room area, and um, it's just some folding chairs, um, a few nice chairs, a few folding chairs. Uh, but it has now changed, and now we played it with a folding table in my living room. That was very nice because it's—it's cooler in the living room, and there's a TV there we can play music off of. Oh, um, okay. And it's really close to the kitchen, so uh, it's just a more open space. Hmm. Normally, just at a dining room table. That's where I know I played in a lot of places. That are, are weird and fun, but so normal. Well, normally I play like at a kitchen table or a dining room table. I've played uh, on a hike. Oh, I've oh. played. How'd you guys roll in a cup or something? Uh, we had a dice rolling app. Oh, so I was that playing sounds with, fun. And we were just like on a hike up to the falls, and we we're just like playing D and D along the way, and we did. You know, it was just fun and it's casual. It wasn't necessarily like a serious like. 5e like you have your character sheet it was just kind of scenario impromptu more super random-esque yeah i've played you know at camps around like campfires i remember we played one of the first games i played that was like a more serious one was we were at we were like in the dark up late and we were playing at the at the table at camp oh yeah the the fantasy magic setting that was a long time ago that was a long time but that was really cool because Everything was dark around, and it was only like you like you could only focus on like the people in, around you and in front of you because it was just dark because we're in the forest in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it was almost like telling ghost stories, but you're yes. all imagining a scenario. Yes, and there's sometimes I, there's I, not much of a difference. I yeah. think that's been my like one of my favorite things is like when you're when you kind of have that limited atmosphere. Like maybe you're outside, or maybe you're. Um, you're not necessarily like at a table. You're like just 
you're surrounded by like nature hmm. and like playing and having that atmosphere where you there there are some external external sounds but like like because it's like dark in the evening and you're playing around like a lantern like you're focused on the game and you're focused on you know the telling the story amongst each other and you're not you, there aren't as many i guess distractions yeah so you're just kind mm. of focused on that communal storytelling hmm. which makes the game a lot more fun yeah what, what about you jake um so I, guys i think i got I, I got the dream scenario here <sighs> surprise um, i am <laughs> so so i live in an apartment two bedroom uh and me and my wife uh because we sleep in the same bed uh, require one bedroom so the other one uh is uh basically and i whenever like older people or people that are more respected ask i call it the office uh whenever my friends are asking it's the D D room <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Um, so it is just covered i don't think you can see the wall anywhere just with uh posters uh and artwork and flags and maps um because i am my personality type requires a lot of external, um, like environmental blasts of of. Uh, I'm trying stimulation. to think. Stimulation. Yeah, stimulation. I require like environmental stimulation, so I have to be in a room that's like colorful, that's like bombarding me with thoughts and feelings and emotions. Like it, hospital rooms make me sick because there's it's just white and I I can't I can't take it. Um, so it's just this you know colorful. Uh, room there's a, there's a big table in the middle that's that's high uh have a, a couch lifted on cinder blocks for one side of the table and then chairs for the rest um with a couch on cinder blocks yeah just to get it high enough for the table because it's a high table oh. um huh. and yeah we've it's been the D room for ever since we moved in about well over two years ago so um yeah it's it is i'm a big fan i love it <laughs> honestly i just want people to Come in here, spend time here, play D and D here, play board games, because um, it is my my little slice of heaven. So that is where we play. But what are some tips for people trying to build their own D and D space? Like, what's an ideal in this world? I, I think number one, like the critical thing, uh, is the ability to be loud. Um, I think if you're near a sleeping roommate or if maybe you're in a place that's, that's very anal about uh, noise, noise complaints, um, you're you're going to be a bad time. Because nothing kills an exciting moment where you're slaying a dragon where someone goes, and I slice him right in the head. Ah, and then someone comes in and goes, shh. Like, it's, it like mm. kills the, the vibe. Um, so I no, think a place where you're allowed to be free... Um, of really any distractions, but of any like outside, like worry, like any worry of outside influence, I think is essential. Yeah, I agree with that. Nothing kills the mood quite like um, you cheer and somebody shushes you. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh that's like the saddest thing. Sorry that I expressed emotion. <laughs> I would also point out just easy access to a bathroom. Oh. One time I was at a friend's house and their bathroom just seemed to be miles away from the table. And so it just slows down things because you have to wait so much longer for a person to travel and come back. Um, that was good. Though uh, access to the kitchen is, is very important. And in this case, it was very accessible. Yes. The kitchen is the most important room in any house, followed by the D&D room. Ah, yes. That's true. Now I agree. Um, I also think that just having a place where you can relax, like being able to just chairs. be comfortable and... 
being in an uncomfortable chair is like the worst experience while playing D D because you're so like like it for me I get fidgety. I'm like, ah, this this isn't fun, this isn't that I like I can't focus and being able to just like relax and focus on the game and just is is something that I really enjoy. Hmm. I'm trying to find a picture, I've seen it before, of Gary Gygax's gaming space. And what it was was him hmm. sitting in this crappy, um, like a 70s style wooden office chair. And there's a bunch of couches in all, of, like in every part of the, the room against all the walls. And it's just stuffed with guys. I think there's a few women in there, but it was mostly guys, let's be honest. And um, they just sat on couches. They didn't have character sheets in front of them. They would just sit and tell uh, Gary, tell Jerry Gygax what they want <laughs> to do. And then he would tell them because he had all the information in front of him instead. And um, like that, I think that's my dream is if I could have what is essentially just a bunch of couches around a table. Oh, yes. Because um, nobody really wants to sit in, like even if you have a, a nice padded chair, um, if you're sitting there for three or four hours in front of a table, there's a certain degree of fatigue. And I think a couch is just a better situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so so going off that, so th- those are kind of the uh, the physical um, ideals of of a room. I, I also want to push that even if you cannot get these ideals, play D anD. d A lot of people will be like, "I don't have a room for D anD." d or "Oh, there's noise complaints," or "Oh, you know, I it, it'd be too too tight of a fit." Whatever, make it work. Go like to your playing local D&D. coffee shop. Yeah, coffee shop, or library, uh, game store. Probably not a library for noise complaints. That's true. That's true. But game things. stores and then uh, a lot of the local coffee shops that I've been to, not necessarily Starbucks, but just the local ones, um, for me seem to be more lenient in terms of people just hanging out, maybe being a little louder. Like you, Like I've seen people play board games. I've played board games there before. If I haven't had to play, if no one as a place to go i've been like hey let's just go to starbucks yeah and 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 i love that the yeah. the cultural shame is completely depleting um because even if you're on the top floor of star starbucks or um you know you're at some table in some coffee shop playing um D, uh you can do so without shame like even the you know most uh how do I how do I phrase this? Even like some random sorority girl is going to understand nowadays that you're playing D and D, and why like there there's not the element of shame that there was in the 1980s. Um, you know, people can still judge you, but like yeah. it, it's not weird to play D and D anymore, which is amazing. Um, so that opens up a whole new realm of public places. Um, as long as you're Another- not being disruptive. Yeah, another place you could go is the park. If it's a nice day, yeah, why yeah. not go outside? Like yeah, you can, really. there's the you get fresh air, atmosphere. Where we are in California, it can be a hot sometimes, so it's not as feasible of an option. But I know there are plenty of places in the United States where, if it's fall or if it's spring, just go outside or go camping or yeah, there are plenty of outdoor places which you can sit at a bench and just have fun that way. Yeah. Okay, so now that we've talked about kind of the physical spaces you can play D&D, let's talk about how to improve your space for playing D&D. Um, so, so what are some ways that um, the physical space, the ambiance, can be improved when playing D&D or any role-playing game? Well, so I don't know if this is a space thing, but it is a tone thing. 
and that is having the GM be animated. Oh, like even yeah. just standing yeah. up yeah. and expressing um, is huge for getting people to pay attention and feel in the game. That's true. You yes. may feel awkward doing a silly goblin voice, um, but the players aren't, they're not there to like make fun of you. Maybe some of them are, but like they're oh. hopefully in the game and really like, imagining this scenario. Yes. Um, and so just standing up, modulating your voice, talking louder, um, being expressive with your hands, it's, it goes a long way. Absolutely. Yeah. Unless you, unless you have great players, um, you can't, you can't be like, uh, Spencer from, uh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. From, um, Harmon Harmon quest. Harmon quest. Oh, like yeah. he, he's a good DM. It's just not very expressive. He's not very expressive, but they also have amazing players. Like they have, uh, Improv. Dan Harmon, they have, um, Aaron McGathy, uh, Jeff Davis, yeah, Jeff Davis, who you know he's been on Who's Lines line? in any ways. Mm-hmm. Like the, these are these are great people, and they have a lot that they can play off, you know, internally, and just giving your players more to work with through having strong tone or just being expressive can really bring people in. I, just being enthusiastic, yes. being yes. excited for D anD D will help you. <laughs> will help. Your players love D and D more. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. Being in, being enthusiastic as a DM is probably the easiest thing that you can do to make your games better mm-hmm. significantly. Mm-hmm. Yes, I um especially when I play monologuing villains, I love to stand up, walk around the table, even sometimes placing my hand purposefully awkwardly on someone's shoulder. <laughs> Um, I mean, like, I just sell it, right? Like, go to town. Um, I love being able to to stand up. I really think when I did the the final fight, like the the finale of uh, the Tube of Annihilation, I think I was standing up more than I was sitting down the whole time. Like, I mm-hmm. was up. I was role playing some of the NPCs that were getting gunned down. I was role playing as uh, the big bad, um, and. That was honestly in my top three, probably my top favorite session of all time. Um, And everyone was into it. Um, And I love being able to walk, like kind of hover around monologuing. And then when someone does something crazy, I sprint back to the book and be like, can I do anything to stop this? Yeah, it's just so good. Being charismatic, being um, just uh, open and having body language. And almost this does take a degree of extroversion. because even going back to what you were talking about, uh, David, with the Spencer Crittenden, he's a great dungeon master, but he is the opposite of this. He is animated. He is anti-animated. He is just like, this is what's <laughs> happening. These are the players. I'm not going to do accents. I'm not going to do voices. <laughs> but it works. It works. It's intentional. Yeah. It, because he has players that are literally top of their field, improvisers, comedians, yeah. and actors. And so, like... Almost, he's almost like kind of the Drew Carey of like a whose line is it anyway? Yes. Oh, yeah, um, exactly. And no, so he's letting exactly. them shine. Um, and but oftentimes, I mean, literally almost every time, you're not playing with big league improvisers and actors no. and comedians. So you have to be the one that does the first push that says, "This game, feel free to do your accent. Feel free to stand up. Feel free to use your body language. Feel free to like act as your character." Um, and that energy is just infectious at a table. I'm sure that I, I don't, I don't want to like 
say like I'm not trying to discredit Spencer in any you know fashion. I'm sure that he's capable of doing that. I think that's just the style that they go for, and it works because they have so many animated characters, and the highlight is on the characters and not the DM. Right. It's almost like you need the straight man DM yes. to be <laughs> yeah. that baseline. That adds the comedy. Uh, it really adds I, to he's the he's always trying to be straight face. I always see him like accidentally like crack up, and he's always like <laughs> like laughing at what the characters are doing because it's yeah. generally you know silly or absurd. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly entertaining. And it's entertaining, but yeah. like I would much rather um, personally try to go for a Matt Mercer tone, where I'm trying to be engaged and be into the game and what the characters are doing, and try to hype not ne- not necessarily hype them up, but like get them to invest there, by being more yes. invested myself. There is a beauty of um, I think one of the times I really saw this was um, one of in my very first campaign. I had a tiefling cleric. Who is played by this girl who is one of my best friends. She's super interesting. So th- this girl was playing this tiefling cleric. And it was really great because it was early on in my campaign, in my world. So racism was was kind of a big factor. Like she'd come in and be like, you know, uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm here to serve the goddess of light. And everyone would be like, oh, <laughs> but you're a tiefling. That doesn't make any sense. You know, and... And it was it was really fun to have that. And so because of that and because of her personality, it was kind of she had an introverted character. Um, but eventually I introduced her to a tribe of I think it was centaurs that um, could only speak, uh, I think, infernal mm-hmm. uh, or one of the one of the crazy languages that only she had access to that I planned out. And I loved it because it made her have to shine. Um, and so I was, you know, talking to her as these, these tribal centaurs, um, and she was the only one that could respond or interpret. Uh, and, and I love, I think one of, another one of my favorite moments in D&D is when the introverted character or when the, the quiet player speaks up and like just role plays the hell out of something. Um, it's just something I crave. I love so much. Um, so I think like if you're a dungeon master, like being energetic, being loud, using your body language um, can get players that you would never expect um, to, to pipe in and like and role play their characters really well. We're talking about how to improve the tone of your game. Um, so these are all like great just game master and social advice. And I think that putting a spotlight on your players week to week, especially the shy ones, is going to be um generally very helpful though that can be not true because sometimes the shy players just really don't want the spotlight at all but yeah um so just guiding it back to uh improving the situation how do you feel about playing music while you play um i did not play music for the first two or three years of dungeon mastering um because i'm very sensitive to i've had moments where like the music uh it'll shift to a song that's not appropriate or it will um, replay a song, or it will do something that's just distracting enough to be like, this wasn't worth it. Um, so I think it's a really important question to ask, is music worth it? Um, because like a miscue of the music can like kind of negate all the energy you were going for. Um, but nowadays, I use music every session. Um, yeah. And I have some playlists on Spotify where it's like horror playlist um boss battle playlist um small fight playlist um like uh town tavern playlist um and i just switch between them and shuffle shuffle just whichever one shuffle uh yeah whichever one is necessary 
So yeah, do you guys use music? Uh, I have in the past. It is um, actually I just had several playlists back when I used iTunes a lot. I actually owned all of these songs, and I would have my iPhone air playing to my friend's sound system. Yeah, and it was really cool, but um, it it can be hit and miss. But then sometimes it's also completely perfect. Oh my gosh! When yes. I, I remember some of the games that Will ran, where the music hit, and I'm, it was like, oh my god, it, the hey, highs David, were so high. David, uh-huh. are we talking about the Lovecraftian one? I'm talking about that, and then there's also uh, we're doing yeah, high maze. We did the oh yes. the Android one, the space one, yes, and like the ending of that, like he had like the yeah. perfect like, it hit music like a freight train. With it. And I'm like, <laughs> it did though. Like it was like some of the most impactful like D and D that I played. Where I'm like, wow. Like I got really immersed because of that. But other times, the music is like, you know, Smash Mouth will come on. <laughs> what? Wait, what playlist no. are you using? No. no, I'm just saying like, like music can have the effect where it's like it can be super distracting because a song that is like. Like, oh, you know, Africa's on, so it's like everybody loses focus because the music's off, and it can just totally distract. So you have to be... It's a tool that is, like, when used well, it hits really hard, and is really impactful, but it's also something that if it isn't used well, it just distracts. It's risky. It's risky. Yeah. And it takes a lot of practice to, like, work into your games. What I've always wanted to do is have someone else be the delegated music DJ. Um, and they would have the iPhone mm. or, or whatever, the iPad, laptop, and um, they would be in charge of when the scene changes of selecting the right tune for I that. would kill. I would kill for uh, a Jamie on the Joe Rogan podcast. Just like, Jamie, look up that video of that gorilla. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> like, like it's so- – like it's he literally has someone that like he could be like look this up and the guy is googling stuff based on what the the interview is about yeah and what? so at any time Joe Rogan could just point at him and and he'll pull up his Google he's like a Google wizard yeah. um and he can pull up scientific studies he can pull up playlists he can pull up YouTube videos it's so great um and it's like holy hell I would pay so much to have someone that would handle the music. The um, they could even do what what's uh, like sound effects, uh, sound cues. Oh, that, that sounds would like, enhance the game. This sounds but, like an assistant DM. It is. And I, it is. I would also give them um, like if they were smart enough to anticipate the needs, like they get this potion, right? And I'd say like give me a random potion, and they already have it. Like oh, this oh is um, God. they have yeah you know, for all the random tables ready. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe they could be a few like NPCs because I think one of the hardest things for me, especially because I love having a very active group of NPCs that talk to each other, it's very, very difficult to talk to yourself as a dungeon master. Mm-hmm. Um, so having like a DM number two, oh. oh my God, he could play whatever NPC you're talking to. And like, even if he's just this random bar patron and so are you, like you can just talk to each other. And it isn't like when I'm trying to, you know, role play as random bar page, but I just hear about that dragon attack down south. And the other one's like, oh, yes, I heard about it. It's pretty crazy, (laughs) right? And it's just like the effort has to go down because my brain power cannot role play like two simultaneous different accents, different worldviews, different. (laughs) It's just impossible. So, yeah, a sec. Yeah, that's just some pipe dream but that would be amazing <laughs> so that is tip number two uh get a second dm <laughs> <Get> a second. <laughs> we're just dreaming right now
Um, so in regards to music, uh, I also kind of want to echo something off that uh, lighting. Um, do you guys play in well-lit rooms? Do you play in dimly lit rooms? The best d and I've played has been in lower lighting. It has like a low, like warm lighting. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's like th- pretty much Porch everything light. else in the room is like mostly, I, w- I wouldn't say dark, but it's very dimly lit. And then you have like a, a light source at the table that all the players can see each other and the DM and their character sheet pretty well. Yeah. And that, and that kind of, I know I, there are, there are psychological things about um, having that type of lighting. It's, it's, it's almost like restaurant lighting. Yeah. Where if you're at like a nicer restaurant, they're going to have only the tables are really lit up and everything else is just kind of like a bit dimmer. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it draws the focus onto the players and onto the table itself. And yes. everything else kind of fades away. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the atmosphere that you want to have at your table is that everything else in the world like kind of fades away. And the only thing that matters is really what's happening at that's the table. so good. Yes, I so totally that's, agree. That's the lighting that I find. Because I, I hate the like super bright like neon. Hospital lights. Not neon, like hospital lights. Like that's <laughs> yeah. the worst lighting you can play on. Like yeah. everything is lit. Everything yeah. is just, it. it's unimmersive. Yeah. So I think that lighting is something that you can easily just like turn off one of the lights and it's like, wow, this game is much more immersive. And that's probably the simplest thing that you can do. Like even just having a few candles at the table could be nice. (sighs) I'm team candles, folks. Because like even echoing off what you said, David, like Mm -hmm. um, the campfire assumes almost a a storytelling option. You know, when you're sitting around a campfire, it's kind of like, okay, who's going to tell a story? Mm-hmm. Um, and so having like what I like to do is have a big candle in the middle of the table, maybe two big candles in the middle of the table and then having yeah. a few other candles uh, or even like a salt lamp or a, a smaller lamp uh, lit up outside. Um, but having that big light on from like the fan or whatever big light is in the middle of the room you're playing in just I don't know. Yeah, you can read your character sheet really well, but like. In general, I feel like that hurts the tone yeah. or the ambiance, especially if you're going for a game that's more serious or more horror focused. The lower lighting is oh, it just adds so much. So I know that you you're you're pretty into immersion in your games. Yes. Would you ever use scented candles for like different yes. scenes? I like would I you like to totally have like a forest would. one? Okay. Because that's something I've seen that. And I'd love to have them as a sponsor one day because I've loved what little I have sniffed of their work. Um, but having those like dungeon candles oh. um, that have like, okay, this is a dank dungeon smell or this is a, a sweet tavern smell. Or you have like pine um, trees. Or, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh like, my that'd God. That would be cool. So I that you that. have like, so that you're, you're constantly being you know, drawn into the scene by the, the smells of Whoa, the whoa, whoa. All right, guys. You don't need to spend any money on these game sets. What you do is you get a couple of Tupperware containers. Oh go out to God. a forest or a farm. You're going to collect the following. You want to get the smelliest, muckiest moss from a lake. Put that in a container. Get the biggest, like, cow pie slash animal poop you can. Mushy is better. You box that up. You're going to get um, like a handful of pine needles, burn them a little bit, and then oh put them away so they're like, you know, roasted. <laughs> and then, um, and basically now you have the smell that that monkey swamp spell is for your town, your tavern, and your dungeon. Mix that with the poop, and that's really perfect for the town. And then when they're out in the world, you just do all three. 
<laughs> that your players will thank you later. They they will love the smell of rotting, Cow rotting dog. forest <laughs> crap. <laughs> it would put them in the mood, and it's free. Come on. Oh. I mean, like, just imagine having like just like you're in a a dungeon. There's just rotting meat at the table, so you just oh. have that smell. Like, how much would that draw okay, you into the insane. world? That's insane. Like, I like I don't know. I I couldn't like. That'd be I, what interesting they call that? though. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but so much you can get so much flavor and immersion for so, role playing purposes. Like, bottom line is what we're talking about is risk reward or really cost benefit <laughs> analysis, right? And it's like, how much would it cost <laughs> for that? For a smell-o-vision machine <laughs> compared to, like, um, you know, getting some candles, you know, getting an evergreen candle if they're in the forest. Mm-hmm. Or um, there's a lot of websites that do them um, that have these. They're pretty pricey, um, but that can add, like, the, okay, this is the dank dungeon smell, this is the tavern smell, all that stuff. Um, that I think that's that's really very interesting. I think the bottom line, it comes back to communication. Um and I'm kind of trying to shy away from Will's uh, pile of garbage <laughs> smell. Uh, but um, with your players, oftentimes you'll do things that m- are meant to be ambiance, but oftentimes overwhelm. Um, mm-hmm. So even with, you know, a smell of a candle um, that might be obtrusive to someone else, um, a smell of a candle, the volume of a music, of a music, the volume... <laughs> One music, please. <laughs> I'll take two music for the price of one. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but no, like, so the smell of the candle, um, the volume of music, um, even the level of lighting, you need to have an open communication with the table. Because sometimes someone's like, I can't read my character sheets. You're going to have to bump the lighting up. Other people say, I can't hear you. You're going to have to turn the volume down. Um, other I, people I, say, I can't uh, tolerate the smell of poop in my... Uh... <laughs> At this table. I spilled poop all over That's the table. That's when you turn Jake, to them and say, do deal with it. <laughs> You're in the Undermountain now, boy. If you don't like it, you shouldn't play D&D. <laughs> We're LARPing. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it, it, it's important to have an open communication about the volume of the music, the smell of the candle, the, the level of lighting um, to make, you know, to maintain the ambiance, but also have the, the comfort level of the players uh, match. I agree. Um, so one thing I don't think we've talked about that I'd like to touch on is horror games. Um, these, all of this ambiance, all of this, um, kind of physical nature of the table and the space, um, really, I feel like when I'm trying to run a horror game, like a horror one shot, um, this is what I think about more than if I'm running a and d game. Have you guys ever ran a, uh, a horror one shots and if so have you been more intentional about the music and the uh the smell and the lighting like because of the horror um yeah well first of all yes i have run at least two maybe three uh horror one shots the first one was actually the one that david was talking about the space marine um dungeon crawl android thing sci-fi horror yeah super good um uh, I had music. I had a specific playlist picked out for that, and that's when it worked out perfectly. Um, actually, so kind of a sidebar going back to music. I feel like when the music is wrong, 
people can just ignore it pretty safely if it's like some instrumental thing. It's not going to be like Smash Mouth, like David said, but it'll be like <laughs> here's yeah, like yeah. um like a classical piano piece that doesn't really apply to the scene, but, but you then can in the next, tone it out. Yeah, you don't you don't remember it, and then. Um, when it's right, you really do. So it can yeah. be beneficial to, to do music. And then the other one was recently I ran the index card RPG, just a little one shot for you and David, actually. Oh, the, the Lovecraftian. Yes, it was called oh Beneath the God. Door. Um, oh. Very simple adventure, but it turned out really great. And there was a playlist I found on Spotify that's just called Lovecraft with like a Kraken emoji. Yeah. And, you know, it's called um, Lovecraft Noir. That's it, Lovecraft oh, Noir yeah. um, with the Kraken emoji. And, oh, um, I had all of you, because we're playing online, and I had all of you start the playlist at the same time as me on Shuffle. So you were oh, getting yeah. different songs, I think, um, but they were always right like the oh entire adventure. No, yeah, was, I remember just being scary. like, holy shit. Because I, I played a very serious, um, what was I? I was a World War One soldier, and I was like this black guy uh, that was very mystical, and and I played it like hardcore. Like I, That's probably one of the hardest times I've ever role-played. Um, but even then, like, I'd have to break character and be like, oh my, ah, oh my God, this music is really scary. <laughs> Cause it just, it hit me so hard and I'd be like, oh, and the descriptions paired with that, like, um, you can't beat it. And this is something that, that is very close to my heart because I, um, as my main job, I am a history podcaster and I tell history stories, um, and the music choices are essential. I spend a, oh, yeah. a very, like, more than anyone would think, uh, amount of time matching the music to the tone and to which part of the story I'm telling. Um, and those music choices can really make or break an episode. Um, and so, yeah, music can just enhance something, especially, especially horror or intrigue or mystery. Oh, it can, it can blow it up um, and make it fantastic. Yeah. Great. So yeah, music is a big deal. Uh, whenever possible, you just got to minimize distractions. Um, I've played, I think I only played one time and it was like board games at somebody's house, but they had little, little kids that were not in bed yet. And I was thinking like nothing against parents or children, but uh, I like, have something against them. <laughs> <laughs> um, like either find a different space to play in or make sure your kids are in bed. You know, starting later is fine. Um, but or we've had people like cooking dinner, like running around while the game is supposed to be starting. We've had people um, like in and out, like the roommates are coming in and out all the time, and that just really disrupts my level of immersion that I can have. Yeah, um, like there, it was the same thing with the roommates. They, the the players were getting up constantly for like the first hour, just like going to the kitchen to the microwave to like make a case of that dang quesadilla. And, <laughs> and I'm like, um, can we eat before? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not mad, but I'm just not in the game. It disrupts the flow of the okay. game and it makes it harder. I to think we play. need to talk about breaks. How do you guys do mm. breaks? I mean, from what I understand, me and Will, we kind of do it the same way where it's just we kind of hit a pause in the story or mm -hmm. we all start to get distracted. And we're all, like one of us gets up to go to the bathroom and then someone else does and we're like, oh, well, let's just make a break out of it. Or yeah. food arrives and it's like, hey, let's take a food break. Pizza's here. Or we have people, because since I play with a lot of teenagers and teenagers are constantly hungry and snacking um i see when they get up to go to the fridge like more and more frequently i'm like okay we need to just like take a take taco a break. bell break mm -hmm. and they're gonna go get fed yeah oftentimes it's just about reading the room so you you just have to see what level of immersion everyone's in and every once in a while you do need to have that like five minute break like mm -hmm. 
to re just like allow everyone to just get all the distractions out of the way and then refocus in. It's yeah. about kind of achieving that that flow mindset. And if nobody's in it, then it's going to be you're just going to be dragging your feet through the game. Right. And and people need to be able to check their phones. Yep. And um, like if, if a lot of people are on their phone, I'm like, OK, let's take a break. And obviously you want to like check your emails and messages and whatever. And I, I mean, I want to do the same. So let's just all take like 10 minutes, get out of our system, and then we'll have another hour or two of D&D. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, um, I I've. I have been trying to make my breaks more episodic, like just how my episodes or my episodes, yeah, my my uh, sessions have become more episodic. You know, oftentimes I'll have a closing song or a like a final stinger where it's like, oh no, this villain is still alive. You know, um, random stuff like that, like twists, cliffhangers. Um, I tend to do that on a very micro scale, even with my breaks. So my players can expect at least one, most of the time, two breaks. Um, in our in our games that we play about three to four hours. Um, and so those two breaks, there's oftentimes like a big reveal or a big, um, okay, roll initiative, you know? And I think that's a good time to take a break. Um, and so I, I think for me, it's about timing too, because it, it's really weird, yeah. you know, if, if you're in the middle, middle of a social situation or if you're doing something, maybe in the middle of combat, it's hard to be like, okay, yeah, whatever, pause it, Taco Bell, we're fine. Um, I really like to time my breaks to where someone will be like, okay, I got to go to the bathroom. Be like, okay, can you wait like two minutes? And then I'll like finish it and be like, okay. And then he shows up and says, oh, I'm glad you've arrived. And they're like, oh, and it's like, okay, that's where we'll take our, uh, take our break. So yeah, I tried to, I, I tried to time my breaks with some sort of arc or movement in the episode. Um, kind of, you know, in an episodic way. Yeah, I think the other major time that I take breaks, so those are those are two of them that we just mentioned. It would be the uh, like players getting distracted, or you know, hitting a major break in the story, or like you hit as a as a DM. Sometimes when you're running a game, you hit like a roadblock, and you need to just prepare or come up with something on the fly because mm-hmm. like some your players do something, they go off the map, and it's like. I don't know what's under this this mountain. Yeah, and you know you probably could improv something that's okay, but you yeah. just need like 10 minutes to collect your thoughts and yep. really think through it. And you're, you're allowed to do that. Yeah. yeah. And that's a great time to be like, hey, like, let's take a break. I need like five minutes to like roll up some random NPCs or something. Mm-hmm. You don't tell yeah. them that, but you just say like, let's take a five minute break. Yeah. And that, and, that, and that helps you prepare as quickly as a jam for any things that you need to do on the fly or maybe read ahead in the next section of the adventure that you're running like there's a lot of good reasons to take breaks. Okay, so um, what about props for you guys? You guys ever have uh, and props? Read this in the most general sense. Like this could be illustrations or handouts or pictures. Um, any physical things that you show to your players? Do you guys use props that much? Uh, not as much as I would like to. Um, early on in my D and D career, uh, well, really it was Savage Worlds back then. I would like handwrite notes or um, even just like a post-it note with like, here's the treasure you find and what it does. Like here's a rifle. Um, players like getting stuff. And I feel like that tacticality or sorry, that tactile quality of, um, of props is really satisfying. I think that's why um, personally, why I really like board games is because you get to kind of mess with these little materials and D and D is missing that a lot of the time. Um, however, I think that there's a lot of investment in, creating these things that is most often not worth the trouble 
Yeah. Um, so, I, so I keep it simple. Like I said, post-it notes are good. Some books, like the adventure that I'm going to be running next, has um, what they call the illustration book in the back. And so in the adventure, it says, show players illustration number three. And so you just show them. And I like that because it paints a better image. Yeah. I love props. I think that as far as like immersion, if you do a prop well, like it's the ultimate if you do immersive. It properly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> it's the ultimate immersion tool because you're literally bringing something into the game from the game into the real world mm. and the players have like this like physical document that they're looking at yeah. like a contract or a letter and they're reading it and examining it examining it and maybe you have hidden clues in the actual letter like there's so many things that you can do and I love the idea it's a lot of work it's a ton of work to do props but I would love to like have a map and then like have like a hidden hidden symbols on the huh. map for them to like interact with or maybe there's like a secret message that they have to like shine over the light and actually do that in the real world to like see the hidden message would be so cool like i would love to have those kinds of things in my games and i'm hoping to in the future be able to do something like that for significant stories but it's just a lot of work yeah, I feel like if we judge all the other things we talked about, about, you know, candles and music, um, like it's it's um, it's very easy to buy a candle or to have a music playlist. But props require a degree of creativity and effort and oftentimes money that is just kind of absurd. Um, I, I didn't realize, though, but what you said, you said maps being a prop. Um, mm-hmm. That is something I thrive in. Like I love cartography and I love making my world map. Um, I have a world map now, but I'm also working to transfer that into a very high def digital um, version using a program called Incarnate um, yep. that has been really cool. Um, so I guess maps are the ones I focus on with this and yep. maybe even with like a magic item or an NPC or someone I will show them a picture from like Google images on my phone um, or even like show them. I oftentimes do this, like show my players the monster image from the monster manual, you know, mm-hmm. cause like, like I'll describe the monster and what it's doing and then I'll show them a picture and they'll be like, Oh, okay. Oh, gross. You know, mm-hmm. um, something like that. But um, geez, what you're talking about, David, that like the, <laughs> some sort of magic uh, ink, Holy moly! That would, like, be, that would be amazing. So, like imagine that'd be having amazing. that. Like you have a like a, a crinkled old map, and then you like hover it over a candle, and there's like a hidden like <laughs> that would blow mine. Like that so would cool. that yeah. would hit so hard, and that would be like you could ha- do some epic things in your game yeah. <laughs> if you're dedicated and that's what you want to do. Like that's how rich. you take your game to the next level. Like yeah. <laughs> once you've done all of these other things, like yeah, add it, some props. It, it really is a next mines. level thing. I think that's a good thing. It's like okay. I have mastered kind of my table. I know my players. I know how yep. I know the rules of 5e or I know the rules of whatever system I'm playing. Then you take it up. You go, I add music or I add candles. I change the lighting, all these things. Maybe I'll, I'll start adding pictures. I'll start having my laptop playing maybe pictures of the environment on like a, uh, a slideshow, stuff like that. And you gradually get up to like handwritten handouts uh, and specific uh, notes um, and then eventually, like, um, you know, this, this, the sky's the limit with this. Cause then you can go to like David's, uh, you know, beautiful, 
uh, maybe codex of like interpreting stuff or, you know, hidden ink or uh, eventually, you know, 3D printing all the magic items you ever give to your players. <laughs> like the sky's the limit. Um, but I think there is kind of a cost benefit analysis you have to do of, of what you can do to make your game better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is, um, so D&D, you can do props for any game, but I think there's a type of game that really lends itself best to this. Um, the one that comes to mind is a game called Call of Cthulhu, oh. um, which we've never really talked about, but it is a 1920s horror investigation thing based so on the good. works of H.P. Lovecraft. Well, if you're in front of a browser, go to Google and type in the Masks of Nayar Lathotep, if you could spell that. Um, it is a, and actually, Jake, take a look. I linked it to you. Okay. What this was was a uh, prop kit collection um, of film quality things. And so you get like business cards and passports and like snippings from museums, like really high quality stuff that I think would just blow the minds of players if they were to be handed like a, a pack of maps or like a handwritten letter. And these things look fantastic. And so I would like to see more people creating props maybe for an adventure. Um, like if let's say Waterdeep comes out or the Mad Mage adventure comes out and uh, Watsy also includes like a prop kit just to make the game next level and it'd be you know like a hundred dollars and you have all the things you need um, though it must be said if we're talking about the masks of Nyar Lothotep uh, this Kickstarter made 74 it made $74,000 and they never delivered on the product so um, just be, be careful that, that's classic bargain <laughs> mm, they're is... trying to make a Lovecraftian point. <laughs> I thought the price was too good to be true. It turns out it was a steal. Oh. <laughs> oh man. How do you go about describing your world? What are some of the things that you take into account in toward in order to describe the proper atmosphere and tone that you want in your games? How do you how do you show your players that in the description of your world Uh, to be honest i think i struggle with this the most because this is the thing where like a lot of times when i was a a younger more uh, immature starting off dm i i would just be like uh I, i would go crazy and try to get everything right but then as i realized okay this is more improvisational this is more about characters this is more about accents this is more about like finding the way my game went I realized, okay, I can improv a lot of this stuff. Um, and the main thing I lost was descriptions. Um, descriptions of the environments, of the city, of whatever they're experiencing. Those became improvised instead of written. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm realizing what I lost in doing that. Um, and so I'm starting to do way more descriptions um, and getting back into it. Because I think descriptions are super important. Um, in regards to setting the tone um, and them realizing. Because you can describe a room, the same exact room, in different ways. And you can describe it in a way that makes you makes the characters feel heroic and ready to win a battle. You can describe it in a way that makes them feel horrified uh, and scared of the grim, gritty reality of their situation. And you can also describe it in a way that's just kind of silly and absurd. And that could be the same room that you're describing. Um, So I think the art of description is essential. Um, And for me as a lazy dungeon master, I think I might have lost a little bit in this because I'm like, okay, I can improv any room in the dungeon. I can just describe it fine. 
Mm. But that physical description, that um, written description, is I think what I lost. Um, first of all, I've never heard that written that, or spoken that way, Jake. Like you could describe anything in a multitude of ways. Um, but you said the Lazy Dungeon Master, and that reminded me that there is a book called The Lazy Dungeon Master, and he he writes about how he preps scenes for description. And if I recall, he says this is written by Mike Shea. Go buy the book; it costs like a dollar. So, like, just do yourself a favor and read it. <laughs> um, he, uh, he always has one big noticeable thing, like though this bandit camp is built at the base of a waterfall, or like there's um, some huge like circle of standing stones, right? Like you just a big hook statue them in. in the middle. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's always one big thing that you just the players are very aware of, and then you can hook your description off of that. So, I I like that you talked about how you can describe anything as anything else. The way I like to view the description in terms of tonality and atmosphere is your description is the color grade of your world. Mm. So if you know anything about film, mm. oftentimes they film in a raw format, which gives you know the most access to dynamic range. dynamic range in terms of color. And then afterwards in post, what they'll do is they'll edit it and they'll they'll bring out certain colors. They'll highlight me, you know, maybe oranges or blues or maybe they'll dampen the colors or maybe they'll make it black and white you know they have all sorts of tools that they can do and all of that affects the way that you view the image like you view the the matrix and it has a lot of greens and it feels like a more digital a, a digital world and then you look at um the how that shifts in like you know, like Zack snyder and how his color grade darker. is very darker it's more gritty it's more grainy and you just look at all of the, and it affects the way that you view it. And that's kind of how I view it in D&D, where I, the way you describe a statue where it like looms over you can be very different than the, the pose of the statue is heroic. And it, those, those two descriptions give you very different feels in terms of how you're approaching this dungeon or this adventure. And what you want to do is you want to focus on like what's here and then what do I want the players to feel? And those are the two things that you kind of take into account for me when I describe, when I do a description. That's good. Like identifying the feeling you want and yes. then building yes. how you describe it off of that, I think is a really yes. simple exercise. Yeah. And I think that that goes to what the tone is, right? I think a lot of times when someone enters a dungeon or uh, enters a tavern, really the question you have to ask yourself as you're crafting the scene is, how do I want my players to feel? You know, if they're entering a tavern, per se, we'll say, do you want them to feel depressed? If you do, have several soldiers at the bar that all have broken legs or broken arms and slings. Um, that, you know, and there's no bard playing music. And uh, a lot of people are cleaning up blood from the ground. Um, if you want it to feel uh, silly and whimsical, then you have the bartender pouring a bunch of beer into glasses that are floating and have him kind of mage handing all these glasses throughout the bar um, while there's this weird turtle um, that is telling some strange joke uh, in his strange accent. Um, so, so that's a way to change it to whim whimsical. So bottom line, I think you can change the tone based on the description. And you really, the question you have to ask yourself is how do I want my characters to feel when they enter this scene and then change it accordingly? That's perfect. I really like this a lot. It's good. I like it. That's. I was going to say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the five senses and how you can describe everything in terms of yeah. everything, uh, all your senses. Because 
so often we, uh, if you're looking at a map or even an illustration, you're just describing what you see in a very flat tone. You're not emphasizing anything or even aiming for, um, like how we've said, you're not describing it, aiming toward anything. And you really need to imagine something very thoroughly to be able to describe it thoroughly. Um, I've had a few times where I have been asked, what does it feel like when I put my hand on it? Or what does it smell like? What is the temperature like? And I'm like, oh, um, well, and then normal you have to kind of make an answer. Standard. Right. It feels <laughs> normal, standard, <laughs> regular. Um, <laughs> but it's important to really root yourself and submerge yourself in, in imagining the hell out of everything. Yeah. Because then you can describe it in every way. And I don't know if you would just volunteer to give... Um, like they say, what does this look like? And I'm like, oh, well, it smells like a wet dog and it feels like a cactus and it, you know, whatever. Like you just be prepared to give those answers um, and then dig in a little deeper maybe, right? Like I wouldn't give all five at once, but I might give two at once. Like I would give yes. the smell of, of a at campfire. At least two. Yeah. yeah. You want to start generally with like the visual mm -hmm. with something else, like maybe the sound or the smell. And then from there, like let's say they start like, well, do I hear anything interesting? And then you can add the the sound element or you can add the touch element like there's there was a online DD game i was playing we were crawling through a dungeon and um, we walked past a hallway and he says you smell rotting flesh come like very strongly coming from down here and and so he never even told us what it looks like he just like that's our first impression of this area yeah and so um anyway it was just a super interesting um introduction right like to uh -huh. sensory description yeah, yeah. It's, and the sensory description is so important. I think ones that are left out are um, – obviously the main one is visual, right? Because it's like, okay, you see a statue in the middle of the room and, and it looks like there's a kind of green marble across the floor. Um, but like I think the ones that are neglected are the ones that you can kind of focus on to bring things to the forefront. I think smell is an underrated one like you said, Will. Like – Suddenly you get a vivid description of smell and you're like, what the heck? Like I, I was not expecting this. Um, another one, like sounds are really creepy. Um, especially if you can do sounds like with, like if you hear like a, or like just some weird that this works really well in horror games, uh, where you're trying to uh, elicit fear, obviously. Um, you can even just like a little like, <laughs> <laughs> like something or even like, like that the, even the absence of sound like like normally yes. you're, you're in a marsh and then so all of a sudden the buzzing of the cicada stops yeah yeah and you're just like why yeah i think there are soundboards you can use uh, which we'll talk a little bit about later um but if you're in control of that and then you actually just kill this very familiar sound yeah um, it could be startling and more immersive for the players Absolutely. Um, I think the rarest one to use, I think, uh, is taste, because um, very uh, little. It, it's very yeah. rare for people to shove stuff in their mouth and just tell tell at say, "Dia, what happens?" <laughs> um, but uh, another one, touch. Uh, yeah, you can be like um, something kind of vibrates with a certain rhythm, or um, it feels certain ways. Yeah, just just. Honestly, using the five senses and the sensory output is so essential. Like, don't I just th rely on visuals. I think taste is probably the uh, most underused by the players in oh, yeah. in D&D. Because most things aren't... right? Like, <laughs> like, generally, things aren't dangerous to put in your mouth. Like, you don't want to 
consume poison, but to like have a little taste and be like, what is this? Like, what is some of the taste that I get from this? Or like, like in terms of tracking, like sometimes wow. you'll be able to like taste dirt and be able to gain stuff oh. from that. <laughs> that's hard to do because I'm but trying that's, to think of a situation where I go, I present them this item and they need to get their key information by licking it. Like it's very no, it's, rare. No, I'm not saying I'm not saying as the DM. I'm saying as the player. Like you could be, you should oh. use taste more. Oh no, I, like I you think, should try to taste it. I think honestly, applying that to the general thing, like a player should want to use their five cent, their yes. five senses all the time, mm-hmm. um, because oftentimes they'll just be like, okay, what do I see? Yeah. Right, I roll perception. What do I hear? But like, if they go, how does this thing feel? What does it smell like? Um, that sort of stuff is, is really valuable. And you know, That's the worst case yeah. scenario is you just don't get new information. You know, be really, so this gives me a great idea in one of Will's game in the Will's current game that we're playing, a uh, player got this necklace made of ears and it amplifies hearing. So like, <laughs> the player is constantly using hearing significantly more than they mm-hmm. normally it would. Just, it gives him advantage on uh, perception hearing checks. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's more like, oh, you hear, we hear people mumbling in the distance and he's like, oh, what do I hear them say? <laughs> Which is something you normally wouldn't do. Right. But I'm wondering if there are other things that you could do to amplify other senses. So you have like oh. the tongue of licking. So it like it amplifies like your taste <laughs> or you have the smell like nose of smelling. So you have something that helps you smell better. Hmm. Like imagine how that would change the way you could describe things or the, the way players would approach things if they could smell or taste or touch things and feel them differently or feel more yeah I, details. I think especially the ones that they use a lot like hearing yeah. that necklace sounds amazing um yeah. except from uh, mama papu or whatever her name uh, is. nanny nanny poopoo nanny nanny <laughs> um her, uh but also something like uh even like a telescope or like goggles you can kind of zoom in yeah um to allow people to do perception checks at range um can can add especially because honestly as a dungeon master most of the time we're trying to find ways to convey information to the party. We're not trying to hide it. We're trying to be like, God, how do I let them know that they're speaking in this language? How do you communicate it? Yeah. Yeah. Like how do you convey it to the party? Um, So giving them magic items, I think that's a great tool. Like giving them magic items that increase certain senses to where they can be smart and creative and be like, okay, what does it smell like? What does it look like from range? What can I hear from range? I think that because it allows you to give your players more information sooner, which ends up uh, creating more uh, interesting encounters. Yeah, it'd be hard, though, because if I gave somebody a, the nose of smelling, then they're constantly sniffing everything. <laughs> then all of a sudden I have to like look at everything I'm presenting to them and, and think about what it smells like or what it smells like at range. Well, a lot of times well, it I wouldn't be I, it wouldn't be a smell at range, it would be more refined smells of clothes. <laughs> so you're you're able uh, to more distinguish uh, like scents. Smashing and a huge nose or things like that. It would be the medallion of the bloodhound if I was to do it. Ah, uh, that's yeah. good. That's way better. That's good. That's and that would be great. So I think um that is yeah, it might not be important to the other senses, and I think we might be overestimating people's uh, adherence to magic items because a sure. lot of times they're like, okay, this does a very specific thing, 
I put it in my bag. <laughs> and, you know, it's just kind of like they kind of forget about it. I'm not so. wasting a two-minute slot on a, um, on a nose. <laughs> on a nose. Yeah. But most of the time, yeah, the, the, using all five senses um, can really make your game more more flavorful mm-hmm. um, or more immersive. Uh, yeah, immersive. So what are some other tools that you can use for immersing players into your game? Well, we talked about music and sound effects, and there are some tools. I think they're free. Um, just a quick Google search turned up something called Soft Rope, Ambient Mixer, and an app called DMDJ, which is super fun to say. DMDJ. <laughs> and I haven't used any of these, so I can't speak to their quality, but um, I'm sure you could just find the best ones on Reddit or um, online somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I use one. Uh, I used to use it way more frequently uh, called Tabletop Audio. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been really good because you can just add certain bits and then it plays them on a loop. And so you can be like, okay, they're in a town. So I want to add um, some a bard playing music. I want to add a wagon passing by. I want to add patrons laughing every 10 seconds. I want to add, um, you know, drinks being poured every 20 seconds. Um, and it creates this ambiance that is really interesting and great um i think the way i nailed this most was with you guys remember that one session you guys were doing kind of the wicker man burning thing yeah the burning man yeah Yeah. um i use that a ton and i did campfires uh loot sounds wolves howling in the background um little things like that whispers um and it i think it added to it um but if you have maybe a big table of people or a complicated session you're going on or even if you've had a few drinks it's going to be harder to use this thing because it does keep like it takes upkeep um in order to use it so and, um, and precious brain power it requires concentration. it does yeah because you're because yeah, your your brain as a dungeon master is in a million different places um and so um i almost prefer uh using a playlist where i could just press it and forget it and then they can move to a different genre and I can switch the genre and then forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I use, I use Spotify um, and I use a playlist. If you don't, maybe if you still have ads, um, like if you don't have Spotify, uh, was it premium or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe an ad would interrupt That's this stuff. Terrible. Uh, but a guy, his name is, let me find his name. It is Nick Hode. Nick h-o-a-d um he has a list of D playlists that are phenomenal there is you know boss battle tavern dungeon uh like just like anything you need right uh one is like a travel playlist there's a lot of uh skyrim um and um yeah it's that's the one i probably use the most um that one is really good. Another Spotify playlist I used, uh, I, I just go to, I, like I said, I love Elder Scrolls. So I will often just do the ambient theme of Skyrim or uh, Oblivion um, and just kind of let that go, especially if they're in like the forest or traveling. Uh, that's a really good one I use. But yeah, I tend to use just Spotify playlist to add to the ambiance as opposed to sound effects because those are great but they i I don't have enough brain power to spare oftentimes Mm. 
Yeah, and, and I think once again delegating this kind of thing. If I could just turn to one God, like a player I at my kill right for hand, that. yeah. No, I mean just turn to one of your players and say, "Okay, can you play this playlist on this list?" Oh, and then they're yeah. like, "Sure, yeah, I'll tap the button." That's a yeah, that's a good I'm, point. I haven't done that, but it sounds like a great idea. <laughs> it does. Maybe I should do that. <laughs> um. So, just a question to you guys: Do you guys uh, do you guys have a laptop or an iPad? I have both of those. That is Usually close. I, I just use a laptop because I have neither. Um, so I'll have to show pictures on my phone. Mm. Um, but have you found it's been more effective to like show a, a short video or show a picture on your iPad or on your laptop to your players? Uh, yes. So it'll be like you walk into this town and this is what the architecture looks like. And I can just like quickly yeah. Google it up and show them. And, um, or I've prepared it maybe. But that's been pretty rare. I don't do that often. Um, or there's an illustration like the map of Omu in uh, the Tomb of Horrors. I was able to just show the players on the screen and not have to waste ink and print it out. Oh, do you not have the book? No. Oh my God, Will. It's so good. I got got every book that I've ever made. But holy shit, dude, that I have never used a map more um, than the the Isle of Chult map. Oh, I printed that out. I printed out a huge 11 by 17. Um, I give them the, the. one with the blank hexes, so they can't see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I printed yeah. it, like I photoshopped it, so it's black and white, so it's easier to write on. Uh, but yeah. also, it looks more like an old style map. Yeah, that was the it, idea. It was really good to just like have my players really pay a lot of money to purchase a map and then to give them a physical map. Oh, very satisfying. Yeah, I also give them a physical map of um, Neonzaru, but it wasn't oh, that useful because you're just not there very long. That's true. So let me let me ask you guys about dice um do your players tend to have a ton of dice do your players borrow your dice because they don't have enough um have you ever had problems with dice let's just talk about dice (laughs) i bought once upon a time i bought this huge 100 random dice bag from chessex Uh and it was it was a deal but in retrospect i really just should have bought a few good dice sets and spent the extra money because almost all of them are terrible um, so I have a, like a big pile of dice in the center of the table, but a lot of my players bring their own and they have the dice that only they use and nobody touches them. Um, and then I have my favorite from like real dice sets I've bought that are now mixed in with my Chessex ball of crap. My, uh, <laughs> all of my dice have been stolen or disappeared. So it was me. me. I believe it. Um, yeah, so I am the opposite of Will. I bought the... You know, was a two hundred dice for twenty bucks. Uh-huh. Um, just like I did that, and I that has lasted me a long time, and I, it's done the trick because it's very strange. When I was in college, I was playing with um, the guys that lived with me, um, so it was us five, uh, and we would play D anD D once a week, and it was fantastic. But um, no one thought, I, like it was a crazy thought. I realized the player's handbook is meant for every player to buy. Yeah. And I just realized that like a few years ago because everyone just passed around my player's handbook for the first like two years I played D&D. Um, and so I got the player's handbook, the monster manual, and the, the dungeon master's guide. And I suddenly, once I, I um, you know, started having a different group playing with me, all of them are bringing their own books. I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're bringing their own dice. And I'm like, guys, I've got dice here. Um, and I'm realizing, oh, this is kind of its own hobby. Like people can collect their own books, collect their own dice. Um, 
it's it's Can not you collect all the dice <laughs> there's one of every type oh <laughs> uh, but i was blown away because i was like i'm so used to everyone just picking from my pile of dice and switching around my my different books um so so yeah that that's been pretty great but dice um yeah i'm in the pleasure of having a party that loves to bring their own dice um there's not um, the only real dice issue I've ever had is, is someone has this big heavy dice <laughs> that they roll around on my table. Um, that's probably destroying it, but I don't care. <laughs> is it um, metal? Um, yeah, it's one of the heavy, heavy boys. Um, so a lot heavy of people bring metal metal dice. One has a dice that, uh, whenever it gets a nat twenty, it lights up. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Uh, which is super cool. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Dice dice are kind of a fun part of the hobby that um. I don't know is there do you guys ever use towers or dice trays or have any rules about dice falling off the table um i've not used towers i've not used trays um i don't let people roll metal dice on my table unless it's on the plastic table we have a nice dining room table now because uh, that will screw up your life um i do have some oversized dice that i occasionally use for dramatic rolls but that's rare <laughs> and uh what was the last part of the question uh, uh dice on the floor Oh, if it's on the floor, the um, I think... They just re-roll it. Yeah, we re-roll it. It's not really consistent. They basically, if it's high, then they'll keep it on the floor. But if it's... Um, I re-roll it every time. Yeah. Dude, I'm Team players. Jumanji. I'm the opposite. Oh. I, I am... You <laughs> find it, you take a picture of it, if it's under the couch, oh and show gosh. us what it's gross. Like. <laughs> no, like, no, no, no. Like, in general, gross. it's like, if it falls off the table, find it, see where... And, you know, if it's cocked a little bit, we'll re-roll it. But, um, uh, yeah... Uh, I've heard people say anything that rolls off the table is automatically a nat one. Oh my gosh. And all of them say no one has ever rolled off the table since. <laughs> and I'm like, that does make sense, but I cannot imagine applying that to my table. It just feels mean. It Ooh, feels I'm going to apply that. Well, dude, I'm playing with teenagers. Like the, occasionally there's like messing around. Help. That would probably and- help. And then we have to like stop and everybody moves their chairs. We look for the stupid dice. But I'm going to imp- implement that rule and tell you how it goes. Oh, man. Because we, we had a similar rule. Uh, we In high school, I was addicted to the game of Risk. We would play Risk uh. weekly. We loved it. Um, and so what would happen is occasionally or we made this house rule that if anyone rolled their dice to attack or defend and it knocked over one of their troops, that troop died. Oh, and so we, I think we called it a natural disaster. And so people would be very careful to like not roll towards their troops because if they knocked them over, they they were off the table. If they, what if they knocked over. over someone else's troops, then no, we would just be like, that's fine. Uh, we'd set them back up. But yeah, if it's your own troops, they die. Uh, so <laughs> that's really interesting. I'd I'm really interested to find out because the logic makes sense, right? It's like yeah, if you know you're going to get a nat one, if you roll off the table, you're going to be much more careful. The last question I have for you guys is cues. Um, so this is um, basically like a musical cue or a sound effect cue, something where in your game you're trying to time something to maybe music to align with your speech um, or maybe even just music aligning with the description of what's going on. Um, maybe even a sound effect to hit at the right time, maybe an explosion something like that have you guys used uh sound cues uh in your game and if you had 
trouble with timing if you have. Oh, man. I've never even thought of this. I've never used these. Nah, fam. Interesting. Because I... Okay. Well, uh, I guess this question's for me. Uh, I I love cues. I love... So I've, I've been trying to... Like I said, I want my episodes... Or I keep saying episodes. Uh, I want my sessions to be more episodic. Um, and so because of that, like I want to have a unique intro with maybe its own music and maybe I am monologuing about something or maybe I'm introducing something or maybe it's an NBC talking about something. And then I want it to end with like a stinger um, where it's like a big reveal or a plot twist or a care, an NBC that's been gone forever suddenly showing back up. Um, and I want them to, you know, start the game excited and end the game excited for the next session. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found sound cues are hard to do, especially with sound effects. Uh, but with musical effects, I can I can do it better. And I think this might be this might come from my experience with Historium and trying to match the tone with the music. But occasionally, I have I'll have a song that's so good as a background song that I'll play it, and then I will like read a final monologue or I will read uh, something just to finish it or even I'll just finish a campaign and play a song almost as like a TV show, the end of an episode, like random, you know, kind of rock song plays. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've started to do that. And I've, I've, I've really found it interesting. Um, it's just, it, it's been good. I, I find it important to not rely on the timing because the timing can be messed up by a player asking a question or someone having to go to the bathroom or, so as long as the musical cue doesn't have like a strict time frame, uh, I found it can really enhance the game. Oh, I'm gonna have to try that. What do you use to play cues? Uh, it's just Spotify. So so I'll be on my playlist and occasionally I'll look at my phone. Switch to, um, uh, I have a playlist called Fade to Black, uh, which is kind of a, a list of uh, post credit scenes or like post episode uh, music just to end and some of it's like somber some of it's exciting some of it's like uh thrilling or just generally sad um and then i'll, I'll pick the right song uh, but i'll oftentimes plan it ahead to be like okay this reveal happens this song plays um as we're all leaving the table so um yeah i found that can oftentimes really enhance the beginning or end of an episode but relying on sound cues in the middle of an episode is oftentimes, it's, it's a crapshoot. Hmm. Let's move into the vault. Looks like our vault has been plundered this week. <laughs> we don't have a question for this week. If you have a question, please submit it to Podcast at gmail.com and we will answer it next week. Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana episode 31. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time. You can follow us on social media. Our Twitter is at VoxArcanaPod. Our Facebook and Instagram are at VoxArcanaPodcast. And our email is VoxArcanaPodcast at gmail.com. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind.